1: Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw, I would be Bradshaw. And that would be the WWE Hall of Famer, Oklahoma's favorite son, Mr. Gerald Briscoe. And we have got the manager of champions. We have got the hardcore referee. We've got Fonzie himself, Bill Alfonso. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, guys, for even uh, thinking about me to be on your show. It's really cool. And I've known Gerald Briscoe since 1980. So um, I think I'm in the right place at the right time. So thanks, well, guys. That, that,
3: that's right, Bill. Uh, you know, John and I talk about future guests and everything, and I said, you know, our guest list cannot be be complete without the referee Wild Bill Alfonso, who goes back with me so far in the business. You're just about your entire career. I think you slipped one in on me in the beginning to get into uh, Florida Championship Wrestling. And it's a great story, Bill. You want us to lead us off with, with, you know, your, your introduction, me, Paul, the great Paul Jones, uh, introduced us number one, uh, introduced it and recommended you for a position and you, you, you got up the, the nerve to come down to one Oh six Albany Street and walk up those creaky old steps and come into my office and sit down and lied your ass off to me.
2: Absolutely, I uh, did work a little bit that day. So, um, You know Tampa was a hotbed of wrestling. My father I didn't know anything about wrestling. My father came home with two comp tickets he got from the sports editor of Tampa Bay Times, Frank Klein. You guys used to put a little ad in the paper who was wrestling Tuesday nights, and they would comp them two tickets. So my dad came home with these two tickets. uh, Said, "Hey Billy, I got tickets to wrestling." I said, "Wrestling? What the hell is that?" I wasn't even. I didn't know anything about it. wasn't interested, but curiosity got me. So I used the two tickets for I was a About 12, 13 years old, went to the armory Tuesday night, and there was Eddie Graham, that blonde hair, and Bobo, and all these guys. I fell in love with the business that day. And um, so we used to go. I used to ask my dad, hey, please see Frank Klein, the sports editor, to give me those comp tickets, you know? It was only two bucks to get in back then anyway, but uh, so I started going, you know, and then Eventually, I started meeting the guys. I met King Curtis and Rocky Johnson and was getting sandwiches. I was a little runner for those guys and became friends and, and so, um, And then my, my best friend, Dave, Dave the Cuban Assassin, um, they got him booked in Dallas. And Dave said, "And uh, hey, Fonzie, you want to go with me to Dallas? And I'll take care of you and you can try to break in. I'll tell them you're my little brother and that you're a referee. And maybe you can get some spots. So I went to Dallas.
3: Hey, Fonz, hey,
2: how, how, how old were you then? I was probably 19 or 20. Uh, so we went to Dallas. David was booked for the Von Erics. And he, and uh, um, so he said, uh, Gary Hart was a booker. Uh, and said, oh, I'm starting with you guys. It's my little brother. He's a referee. He'll be with me so he can never use them. So I was out there six months traveling to every show with Dave, but they had Bronco Lubis, David Manning, and a couple other referees. There was four territories in Dallas. Uh, Devon Eriks, Joe Blanchard and uh, San Antonio, Paul Bosch, only Rand Houston, the best payoff man in the business. Jerry Briscoe's brother told me that, Jack Briscoe. And uh, then they had the Funks and Amarillo. So there was four territories. But the whole six months I was there, trying to, you know, get a referee spot. I worked by accident. Something happened to the ref or something. They, they used me. So I actually worked for Joe Blanchard once or twice. I worked for the Von Ericks once or twice at the, at the sportatorium. Um, I never worked for Paul Bosch in Houston, but then um, I worked for the Funks in Amarillo. My first match I got paid for $90 was a sellout in Amarillo. It was the Chic and Terry Funk in a chain match. It was crazy. And uh, so that was pretty cool. The time went by, so when he worked four or five times in the six months. So I said, Dave, I, and then Dave got booked in Charlotte for the Crockett's. So I went to Charlotte with him for a few months and they had Tommy Young and Stu Swartz as a referee. So there was no way I could get in there. So I said, Dave, I got to go home. You know, I just can't live off of you buying my food for like in eight months you know what I mean let me go home and get a real job there's no spot for me and Paul Jones got wind that I was leaving and Paul Jones liked me and he said hey you going back to are you leaving huh I said yeah Paul I, I can't there's no spot for me here i got to go back to Florida he said well listen when you get to Florida I want you to call Charlie Lay uh, and ha- try to get a meeting with Gerald Bristol he's a really good Friend of mine, tell him I sent you. Tell him you're a referee, and so on and so on. So I came back to Florida, and I was really intimidated because this is where I spent my childhood watching these guys: Jeremy Briscoe, Jack, and uh, Eddie Graham, and these guys. So I finally worked up the nerve to call Charlie Lay and say, "Hey, my name's Bill Alfonso, referee. Uh, Paul Jones sent me to see if I can get a meeting with Jerril Briscoe. He was assistant booker for Dusty." And he said, okay, kid, uh, come on in. And was, so he set it up. And this was a Monday where I went to meet Gerald Briscoe. So I walk in, Charlie Lay introduced myself. And so I says, go upstairs. I found Gerald in the office, introduced myself. We chit chatted for a minute. And he said, well, what, what experience do you have? And I said, well, I worked for Joe Blanchard, I worked for the uh, Vine Erics, I worked for the Funks, I worked a little bit in Mid Atlantic which I did once or twice. And and Gerald said, well, you got the qualifications, you know, Um, and uh, Paul Jones is a good friend of mine. He wouldn't have sent you, you know, and he said, but unfortunately, Fonzie, this was a Monday, Gerald Briscoe. He said, unfortunately, Fonzie, there's, we have our referees here, but maybe this summer, this was May of 1980. He said, maybe this summer, we're gonna, we might run two shows, so, leave your number with Charlie Lay. We can use you. We're badly for the, you know, the, and use as much as we can or whatever. I said, well, thank you very much. And I appreciate it. And I walked out of there feeling really good, but with no job, you know, they didn't say come for a tryout or anything. So this is a Monday. I get a phone call Tuesday morning and it's Charlie Lay. Hey, you know how Charlie talked, Jerry. Hey, kid, uh, uh, Jerry wants to know if you can come tonight and work the arm referee said, yes, sir. What time do you want me there? He said, seven o'clock. So, of course, I came early and walked in, and it was I was thrilled, thrilled. I walked in the dressing room. I was early, and Dusty was there. He said, are you the new referee? I said, yes, sir. And uh, it was only supposed to be for that night, but I found out why they called me, because I think the referee that they were using had the three main events. And Dusty was working main event with one of the guys in the car and had a flat tire on the way to West Palm beach with no spare. And they missed the show. Dusty was fucking livid. Fired the guy on the spot. Didn't fire the three top guys, but fired the referee for having no spare. So.
1: Wait so, a minute. So. Wait
2: a minute. Wait a minute. That, that doesn't seem fair. If, if you're riding in the
1: car, you don't know that the moron driving doesn't have a spare. So he got fired for cause some Idiot that he may have had nothing to do with, but he fired all of them.
2: No, no, no. He only fired the referee. Oh, he the fired driver. the referee. Okay, all right. That, that makes sense. That's where I come in. That's why I come in. Dusty was living, sold out. He weren't going far
3: those main hills, man.
2: <laughs> That's just what I was thinking. I thought, how can he fire So I go, I go to the army that night, Tuesday. It's my childhood fucking where I watched wrestling every Tuesday night. I'd go. Uh and somehow I did a good job. And at the end of the show that night, Gerald came up to me and said, hey, can you make Miami tomorrow? I said, yes, sir. <laughs> at the end of the Miami show, can you make Jacksonville? <laughs> Thursday, I said, yes, sir. Thank you. And then Friday and Saturday were two spot shows. Wherever we would, we would run the uh, St. Pete Bayfront Center or Lakeland or uh, High School somewhere or whatever. Friday and Saturday was usually a spot show. And then Sunday Orlando. So I worked all week. And that Sunday after the show, Gerald Briscoe comes up to me and says, congratulations, you're full-time with us. We like you. And just remember this, you can leave as fast as you came. I'll never forget those words. (laughs) And I was green. I was relatively very green. You know, I didn't know the business super, you know, what only works. But I had watched and studied the business for a long time. Uh, But I was a natural for some reason. And then or oh, Bill, Dusty Bill
3: what, a, what, what it was, Bill? It was your memory. I mean, your your memory. Uh, you know, you'd receive finishes from me, from Eddie and Dusty, and and our finishes were twenty minutes long. Match might, might be twenty two minutes, but the fin- finish was twenty minutes long. Well, that's why was just you you, you can go word for word for those finishes back in there, John, as everybody knows. You know, the heels dressed on one side of the building, baby faces on the other side. The referee was our communicator. He had to carry each and every finish all the way back and forth. And, and i give you a good example.
2: i give you a good example. So, Orlando, Eddie Graham Sports Complex, every Sunday, Dusty would want me there at 7 o'clock, not 7.05, not 6 after 7. I mean 7 o'clock, I'd walk in the dressing room. This was after a little bit of time where I got used to these complicated finishes and all that um i'd meet dusty at seven o'clock he'd have his uh, book and sheet going over this this match from the first match to the main event give me basically all the finishes uh intermissions times everything and then i'd go over to the hillside which they never saw each other and they would be waiting for me at 7 15 and i have everybody in all in order i say okay first match scott mcgee and uh Whoever Dusty uh, said, twelve minutes on Sunset Flip, one, two, three, and I go on and on. Uh, so that's how I learned the business so good. My mind got trained after you know several months and uh, years. I was known as a a really good referee. It took a while for Hugh to like me and Eddie because you know they thought I was a geek or something. You know Eddie Graham called. I think Matsuda called me a geek one time. Uh, But after a while, I became his guy. Eddie Graham loved me. Uh, Matt Suda loved me because I was really good at what I did. For some reason, I adapted to the business perfectly.
1: So, Fonzie, you were a young guy in the business, and you're carrying finishes over there to the heels. Were any of them trying to politic their way out of it
2: or kind of bully bully themselves into a better finish than what you gave them? Yes. uh, (laughs) It was a sold-out. Orlando show, and I got the finish from uh, Eddie Graham. Special referee was Kevin Sullivan and Dusty Rose. Eddie Graham special ref, uh, special referee. So Eddie, I mean Kevin's waiting for his finish. You know, is really excited. Uh, um, so I get the finish from Dusty. I go over to Kevin on the heel side, and he said, "Finally, what's the finish?" I said, "Well, you want to diplomatically, or do you want to tell you like it is? Tell me like it is." I said, the owner will nail you and the booker will cover you. That's all I said. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? And he tells me that story all the time when I see Kevin. Did you guys just see him on Steve Harvey's show with JJ
1: Dillon? Oh, I thought it was awesome. Did you see that, Jerry? Oh, I haven't. What is it? Oh, it's so good.
2: JJ Dillon. Steve, Steve Harvey has a, a show like Judge Mathis, which I was on with Missy Hyde. I'll tell you oh, that's I from,
3: saw that. I, that was great. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. It was a total work. You know what I mean? They both got money. and
3: J.J. looked good. He said he was 79 years old. I couldn't believe it. J.J. looked great. We had J.J. on the show and J.J. Was, was awesome on oh, that. Yeah. Was
2: yeah. His mind was sharp as a tack. You know, I see him once in a while at the conventions. I see all you guys at these conventions, which is uh, just a pleasure to uh, you know be involved in so um it was great jerry they had uh steve harvey was the judge
1: and apparently uh jj had loaned kevin seventy five hundred dollars and said pay it back whenever and so it'd been five years and kevin hadn't paid it back yet and so steve and harvey asked him he goes when are you gonna pay it back and he read and he read the definition of whenever in the dictionary <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. So he goes, "I'm still under time."
2: <laughs> I thought it was great.
3: Yeah, I did too. Yeah, cool. So uh, you, you're you're moving along now with with Dusty. You're getting these finishes, you know. And uh, Florida was heat driven back in those days, as, as a lot of the local territories were. I mean, uh, even though you had the strong baby face, you had to have those killer hills, and they were always heat driven. Guys like Sullivan, uh, Curtis, and Lewin, and Buddy Colt and all, all the greats that passed through here. It had to be a thrill, you know, you growing up here and seeing all those guys when you are a child. Now you're in a ring with them, and you're actually delivering their, 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 their order for the night, which is kind of cool.
2: Yeah, my first couple of years, I couldn't believe what I was doing. And then finally, I registered. I said, okay, I'm in the business. You know, after a couple of years, and I got the respect, after a couple of years of serving as a young referee and getting the finishes and, and, uh, and, uh, being well liked Eddie Graham fell in love with me because I was walking out of 106 North Albany, getting ready to jump in my car. driving to Miami after two hours of TV that morning. And some Mark said something stupid to me, wrestling's Faye or whatever he said. And I got in his face and we had a fight and I beat the fuck out of him for some reason. I was lucky. And Eddie Graham was watching this, and he, oh Fonzie, this fine boy, he liked to see people get stretched. You know what I mean? Oh, that, to...
3: that was a thing down here, right? Bill Fabe, I mean, it was strict down here. You didn't, you didn't bust Eddie's Kayfabe, or you were gone. I mean, the guys don't realize how, how important that was. You could get in all the fights you want wanted to, but you better win every one of them, or not show up for work the
2: next day. Yes, yeah, Fabe was so big. When we would travel, we would have to tell Charlie Lay who we were riding with. Charlie Lane went, who are you riding with, Fonzie? And I would say, you oh, me, Kevin, Mark Lewin, and, you know, Dick to Snake or something. You want to know exactly who we were riding with. Uh, no heels in a car, no baby faces together. In fact, you remember, uh, of course, you remember Killer Carl Cox. He was fishing in Tampa Bay in his boat, and he had some kid with him, young kid that he was working an angle with, and he they thought he would be the next gen Briscoe, but it didn't turn out like that. I can't remember the guy's name. You would know him. Um, and Eddie Graham pulls up in his boat because he lived right there in the bay and said, "Put the guys. hey, are catching anything? And then the next day, the kid got fired for Carl Cox didn't, but the kid got fired for being babyface and heel in the same boat. Nobody fucking saw him, but that's how strict Eddie Graham was. This year, it's time to get off the couch
1: and get back into the bedroom. Blue Chew can help. Guys, we know that confidence can take you far in life. And when you feel confident, you are at your best, especially when it comes time to step up to the plate. That's where Blue Chew comes in. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, day or night. So you can plan ahead or Be ready whenever an opportunity arises. The process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com. Consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part, it's all done online. So no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. BlueChew's tablets are made in the USA prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet package. They always say first impressions are important what about lasting impressions so if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform Blue Chew can help and we got a special order deal for our listeners try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code JBLGB that's JBLGB At checkout, just pay $5 shipping. The BlueChew.com promo code JBLGB to receive your first month free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Chew for sponsoring this podcast.
3: Speaking of fighting and speaking of protecting the boy, that's another thing you quickly gained a reputation. Uh, protecting the guys from their self. And uh, one night I remember leaving Miami beach convention center, Jack and I were on the fringe as a turning heel against Mike Graham and, and Steve Kern. And you were traveling with us that night. We we're walking out to the car, to put our bags in the car. And this, this guy got a little wise with either me or Jack and uh, started coming towards us. And you did that old Alfonso one, two punch. And he was down on the, on the ground. And and you jumped down on the ground with him, started hammering him, hammering him, jackhammering him, and Jack ended up going coming over and pulling you off the damn guy so you wouldn't kill him, man. So, so but protect- you you always were protecting the guys. That, I think that's one thing that really helped your reputation. Besides your 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 ability to to retain the finishes like you did. Well, it was only on occasions
2: that I would get in a fight, so it was built up in me. I wanted to fight now and then, you know. I wanted to protect the business, so. But usually these guys were a lot bigger than me. I, my, my M.O. was I would put my face in the guy's chest so it couldn't hit me in my face. he could hit me in my head. Then usually some of the boys would say, hey, Fonzie's getting beat up. And they'd come over there and beat the fuck out of these guys. But uh, I did enjoy that. I got a lot of frustrations out, you know, and, and, <laughs> and protecting the business was really, really big. Okay. Um, my assistant, my beautiful niece, 26 years old shoot this for me. She said, move up. Okay. I'm going to show you some cool picks in a few minutes. Well,
3: I wondered how you got on this podcast. So easy. You had your, your niece there setting everything up for you, huh? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm grateful. We go through do that every week.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. What do yeah, you got? got what do you see. got
3: there in the, in the backdrop there, Bill looked like some cool pictures. Man. All
2: right. Let me just show you. Um,
3: you know, when I
2: got to WC. let me tell you how I got to WCW, and I'll start giving you these picks. So Florida Championship Wrestling kind of folded at the end. And remember the cables were taken out of WCW and Vince. I was on the first Monday Night Raw, too, ever, uh, in 93 or 92, whenever it was. Um, so Florida office closed up, and Dusty went to uh Worked for Ted Turner, you know, and and Crockett and then TBS. And I really couldn't leave because I was fresh. Remember my wife got sick, Jerry, with the kidneys and we lost her. And and, uh, she got so sick, she had two transplants and we finally lost her after a two-year battle. And I couldn't really leave out of Tampa because she was in critical condition for a while. And um, you guys paid me. The I think the office paid me a little bit, and the boys would put a little bit. I'd get a little envelope. That was very cool. I'll never forget you guys for that. <clears throat> so anyway, the business folded, and I got a newborn baby. You know, and my family's helping me with her, and so I couldn't go to TBS right away. Plus, I wasn't invited yet. Um, so after a while, I get a phone call from Hiro Matsuda, and Hiro Matsuda says, "Hey." Well, honestly, we're doing this is much here Matsuda like me. After a while, I had to prove myself after, you know, years and years.
3: And here's a guy, Matsuda, who wasn't in your corner in the very beginning. And, and now now you've now you won him over.
2: Called me a geek. Uh, the, <laughs> the way I mentioned something, he says, you're a geek. <laughs> but I won his respect after a while. I was really good at what I did. And so I get a phone call I see and says, hey, WCW and the Japanese office was running a joint show. First time ever. It's Fujinami against Ric Flair. 65,000 people in the Tokyo Dome sold out. I want you to come referee the main event, Ric Flair and Fujinami. They had their own referees. WCW had all those referees, but Matsuda wanted me. So I was thrilled. and said, well, what can I do to look good and all that? So like, you know, of course, I got a my hair cut, beautifully shaved, all the, a bow tie, and I had my mom, my dear old mom, who passed away. Um, she sewed a Japanese flag and an American flag because it was Fujinami against Ric Flair, American against Japan. <clears throat> I had what a des-
3: working guy you are, man! <laughs> I
2: had a designer shirt, beautiful bow tie, nice pants, beautiful shoes, everything, <clears throat> and I waited till I got in the dressing room. I got dressed close to Dusty in the Japanese office. And when I put that shirt on, all the Japanese owners, Fujinon, ooh, ah, oh, they like the shirt. You know what I mean? So it was over. Uh, so I refereed that match. It was outstanding. I did a fucking outstanding job. Took my bump, bam. And it was a controversy finish. And um, the next day, I was on the cover of the Japanese magazine holding up the largest athlete on the planet's hand with that shirt on, if you can see it. Oh. um. So we, we were in Japan and we went to the after party and uh, all, the, all the American guys were there and um, it was time to go back to the hotel and the cabs would pull up and take three guys and three guys and I stayed with Dusty purposely. I want to jump in the cab with Dusty to get his opinion what happened and maybe he might put me over. So everybody left and the last cab pulled up and it was me, Dusty, and Ric Flair, the main events in the Booker, right? Uh, so Dusty and Ric Flair were talking because they couldn't really talk at the after party, all the boys and shit. So they were talking real serious shit in the cab going back to the Keel Plaza, the hotel. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, uh, Dusty says, hey, Nature Boy, who who we got in the back? Who we got back there? Oh, who we got? i am sitting in the front seat of the cab and Dusty... Uh, Look at that, baby. Dusty and um, Flair were in the back seat, and Dusty says to Flair, "Hey, nature boy, who we got in the front seat?" And they put me over. Oh, that's Fonzie and shit. And Dusty said, "Hey, baby, it's gonna happen for you. It's gonna happen for you, baby. It's gonna happen. I'm gonna have Jody call you." I said, "Thank you, Dusty." A couple of days later, fucking Jody Hamilton calls me, and Couple of days later than that, I'm making 100 grand a year. Uh, uh, Signed a contract with WCW. Unbelievable. Then they put me with Giant Gonzalez to be his personal assistant. because You know, the largest athlete on the planet it was thrilling and he was pretty cool. Uh, and I traveled the world with him, did movies and all kinds of shit, Baywatch with him.
3: Uh, well, Bill, tell forgotten. us a little bit about John Gonzalez. He's a forgotten giant, if there can be such thing. I mean, but this this uh, guy was absolutely huge and a good-looking young man. He didn't have that uh he didn't it, have
2: the on uh, the, the
3: dice. He, right. he had
2: it, but he still his doll wasn't protruding and all that yet. Uh he was a young, he,
3: well he must have been a knockout with all the ladies uh around. I'll
2: tell you a great story about that. So um He was playing European basketball. He was legitimately seven eight, but they built him as eight foot, and he could pass for eight foot. So they they brought him one Turner guy. One of Turner's guys that owns a you know Turner owns the Hawks, the Braves, CNN, fucking you know, is a billionaire. So he had a scout in Europe, and they spotted Giant Gonzalez playing basketball. So they approached him and said, "Hey, Turner wants to bring you in and play for the Atlanta Hawks NBA." So they brought him in, and, but his knees were already a little messed up for being a giant and playing basketball. But he couldn't play seventy um, percent in the NBA. He could play, you know, twenty five percent. The NBA guys are on. But so Turner says, "Look, we can't. You can't pass inspection for the NBA, but I'll." this thing called wrestling we're going to make you wrestler and the giant said wrestling what's that didn't have a clue that's why he wasn't a good worker he didn't know how to really sell He sold awkward it. but it's the attraction you know the eight foot giant um so they trained him a little bit and put him right in uh in the ring and he needed somebody with him at all times to drive around he wasn't uh knowledgeable and so Dusty asked me. They gave me an extra 25 grand a year to drive around. I said, you don't even That's not even necessary because it was all the perks and stuff I got from being with the Giant. And we became really good friends. Um, I was with him three years. And he was a beautiful guy. And the women loved him for some reason. Tall Argentine, dark hair, beautiful. And the women would love him. And not the... Girls that went to wrestling, uh, you know, we used to call them rats back then. I hate to say that, but we arena rats, but not the rats that once loved them. I mean, we'd go to the mall. We had housewives following us around, you know, beautiful. So here's an example of uh, Jack Gonzalez and the girls. Uh, So I was traveling with them and it it would be very common for me to get a phone call at two o'clock in the morning and I'd be at the next room. We would never split a room, of course. Uh, he would say, Fonzie, can you go to give me four or five hamburgers? I'm hungry. I can't sleep. So it's my job as his assistant to go get him whatever he wanted and bring back me, go back to sleep. So I got phone calls like that a couple of times a week, you know, on the road. And so he calls me one night. It's about two o'clock in the morning. And I go to his room thinking I'm going to go get him a hamburger or something you know, or four or five hamburgers. So I knock on his door, he answers it. He's an eight foot giant naked, answers the door. Naked, why are you naked? And he opens the door and there's a beautiful blonde girl in the bed, naked as a jaybird. I said, "Uh, what do you need me for? He says, well, we got a problem. And I'm kind of embarrassed because, you know, this, I mean, like a Pamela Anderson, beautiful. We met her at the mall he's naked and she's naked on the bed and he says look i need a favor bunsey i said anything johnny we're gonna get you for what he says no my girth on my thing is too fat i can't get it inside the girl i said okay he said i want you to jump on her and warm her up for me and then maybe after that you leave right away and then i take over and now i'm looking at the girl she says, "Bonzi, please help us. This girl's freaking beautiful. I'm embarrassed and of red. So my job that night was to warm up a beautiful broad for the giant. You know what I mean? And he, <laughs> it only happened one time, but
3: it's only a pretty in pretty the wrestling movie. business, right? And I tell
2: that story different times in different places, and people love it for some reason. Did he? Did he watch? Did he watch you naked? Oh yeah, he was right there waiting, waiting for me. You know, waiting so you can jump on her. You know."
3: Was he your coach? (laughs) (laughs) This is John Layfield. One half of stories
1: with Briscoe and Bradshaw. About a year and a half ago, Mr. Briscoe told me, he said, you know you're going bald? I said, well, of course I am. I come from a family of bald male men. It's just a matter of time. But it wasn't. Fast forward. Mr. Briscoe says, your hair grew back. What happened? It's simple. The ingredients in keeps is what happened. I may look good bald. I'm not going to find out anytime soon. Two out of three men will experience some form of hair loss by the time they are 35. More than 50 million men in the U.S. suffer from male pattern baldness. Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors. There are only two FDA-approved medications that can prevent hair loss. Keeps offers both. Convenient virtual doctor consultations and medications delivered straight to your door every three months. 24 7 care and support keeps has a network of expert medical advisors prescribers and care specialists to support you in making your hair goals a reality and remember you don't have to leave your home Treatment start at just ten dollars per month and keeps offers generic versions of the two fda approved medications to prevent hair loss if you're ready to take action prevent hair loss go to keeps.com jblgb to receive your first month of treatment free that's keeps.com slash jblgb to get your first month free
3: we lost bill after that (laughs) Uh, we're back we're back hold on the giants of the giant spirit came and got him (laughs) okay (laughs) um
2: but that's a you know a story, pretty cool. You know, being with the largest athlete on the planet, and I
3: mean, we got. I was, do- I was going to ask you what what was your most unusual challenge, but that pretty well answered my. Yeah, question. That,
1: that pretty well answers it really yeah. well.
3: But yeah, other than other common, than, there was common things to do too, like hey, hey, it Bill, something- Bill, Bill,
1: Bill, Bill. Yes. It make you nervous that you're ha- you're warming this up with this wonderful, beautiful
2: woman, and this eight foot tall giant is watching you naked.
3: Standing yeah, over you.
1: well
2: <laughs> we were such good friends, I didn't mind being there because we were naked in the dressing we room taking showers and so You know how the boys on the road we take showers and go to the next town and stuff. Yeah, but so this seems
1: it's a little different.
2: Yeah. I never thought of that, that way, you know. I never thought he might, you know, uh
3: but there weren't any slaps on the cheek or anything like that. <laughs> no,
2: no, it was faster, like
3: a, faster, faster. So. Was, was there not, was there critiquing
2: going on or anything? No, he asked me to perform Advice. a service for him, and he listened, and he didn't say a word, and then I
3: warmed her up, and she
2: said, "Okay, time I'm ready." And, <laughs> okay, I'm and She <laughs> later thanked. They both thanked me, and I left. I was there was okay. fifteen minutes. Did you minutes. get a
3: bonus? Did you get a bonus for
2: that? I got. Bonuses all the time because, you know, I got to help that beautiful girl out. That was a bonus. And then just <laughs> right. be with the giant period. The bonuses <laughs> were flying to, they wanted him to be on Baywatch in an episode. They wanted him to be on the pilot shoot for Thunder in Paradise, Hogan's uh, TV show for for a couple of years. Uh, the bonus was for me when Turner called the wrestling office and said, hey, I want the giant to go sit in my box where me and Jimmy Carter would sit and watch the Braves because they were winning World Series that, uh, in the 90s. They were The Braves were real hot. So the camera would be on the, on the ball game and then pan over. Hey, the Braves are doing so good. Even the giant, the largest athlete on the planet comes, and I'm sitting right next to the giant Ted Turner's booth, you know? So that's my kind of perks, you know? So that was pretty cool. Did he enjoy the business? He did, but it was hard on him because he was the giant. He was an actual giant. It was hard for him to travel. The only car he would fit in half as comfortable would be a Cadillac. So the office rented me a Cadillac, oh, darn, for three years. You know, every day I had a brand new caddy from Avis. Uh, he adapted to it, and he was trying to understand it. He had a good time because, you know, the boys, were, you know, we were hanging out and He wasn't a drinker at all, he wasn't a pot smoker, no drugs, absolutely, pretty straight, but he did like the
3: girls.
2: (laughs) He did like the girls, so he adapted to the the business pretty good, but not in the ring. He wasn't really talented in the ring. He's only been in the business a few years and um, they really didn't teach him that good. And plus he was just an attraction. Well, no, he. I was
3: going to ask you a little bit about the training. I don't think he really had any actual training. I think they just kind of showed him a couple of things and threw him out to the wolves, right?
2: Exactly, exactly. That's why he was never a polished worker. Yeah. And uh, he used to do certain things. I said, Giant, don't do that. You can't throw a punch, one hundred percent. Don't throw a punch. You do the big couple big man stuff. But that's all you need to do because usually they would not put him in with a at a main event. They would put him in as a. You know, one of the top three matches is an attraction, and he'd worked with, like, uh, uh, Curtis Hughes or something, bam, 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 big thing, and beat him, you know what I mean?
3: You know, we all, we all had, our, had our, our, our guys that we had to follow. John had to follow uh, uh, Black Jack when he was a Black Jack. You had to follow the great Stu Swartz. I had to follow the great Jack Briscoe. Was, uh, was, uh, the giant, did he ever feel any pressure to, to be Andre or what, how the guys backstage, got I was really never around, uh, Gonzalez that much. Was he accepted by the guys? Was he, was he a pretty he guy was like accepted. By,
2: yeah, he was accepted by everybody loved him because he was, uh, like a kid. Basically, you know, he was thrilled to be in the business and then being around the Steiners and all these talented, all these personalities, which loved him because. He was the tallest athlete on the planet. I think the only guy that was almost as tall as him played for Houston. Remember Ming, the basketball player that played
3: oh, for Oh, yeah, that guy from China. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Right, right. That was the other giant, but my giant was bigger. So uh, just the boys being around him, they, they were amazed every night at his size. They always put him over, and he was a joker. And, and, and you know, was a pretty
3: good athlete, too? Oh yeah, he was playing
2: European basketball I know. For, for years. That's why his knees got burned out. He couldn't play for the NBA, or else he would have been playing for the NBA for a couple of years. But he his, was a his great problem, athlete. problem,
3: his problem, mostly in the business. This is this is your judgment only. Uh, what what was his big? He just didn't have enough training, or just. You know. I think it was
2: that, and he didn't really get how to tell a story. He couldn't sell. you would hit him. He'd sell. He wants a match with. Um, I was a referee, WrestleMania 9, and he worked against The Undertaker. And we had a pre-match before that. You know how Vince wants like, the week before, we were at some little spot show in WWF, and we had the same match we'd have at WrestleMania. And when he slams me, and that's the DQ and all that, when he slammed me, he brought me down so hard, he knocked me out. I was out cold. I said, fuck, you know, and... Um, but then the, if, uh, then they had the match at WrestleMania. He let me down easy. But if you watch that match, go back. Anybody watching this um, podcast, um, go back and watch that. You can see that the Giant really didn't have that. He wasn't a classic worker by no means.
3: How did he it wasn't like his business? fault? It wasn't his fault. How did he like the business? Was he and uh, once he once he said because this kind of just throwed on him. You know he couldn't run that basketball court no more because of his knees and his ankles. And, uh, and then Turner goes to him, hey, I got a big investment from you on you. I'm not going to lose you. I'm going. You're going to be a wrestler. Right. How how was that transformation? Him, mentally. Max Back, Max. It was pretty good because they gave him a big contract.
2: I think they started him off at two fifty a year, then the next year three fifty, next year four fifty. So he enjoyed that those big checks that we were we getting by which is to turn a home entertainment. You know, like in a big check like that. So he liked and he adapted to it. He actually loved it because he liked being around the boys. He liked the camaraderie of us and what we were trying to do. But
1: and how did you end up going to WWE from WCW with, with the giant?
2: Well, I went from WCW to WWF. Let me tell you how I got there. So we were in WCW, I mean, the giant for a couple of years. And then this, a new, um, uh, guy came in, a new director of, uh, WCW. The, he was the manager of a pizza hut or something. Jim heard, yeah, didn't know anything about wrestling, but he knew how to manage big corporations and shit. So he came in and immediately he came up to it, not the same day, but he came in after a couple of weeks, he approached me and the giant says, Hey, um, we need everybody to take a pay cut because we're only making X amount of dollars and then if it the builds back up. But the giant already had a contract and, and the giant told me, he says, Fonzie, I'm not taking no pay cut. And uh, I said, I don't want you either, but you know, what are we gonna do? He says, You know anybody in WWF? I said, Yes. He said, here's our options. I can go back and play European basketball or um, if you know somebody at WWF, let's see if they're interested in it. So J.J. Dillon, who I worked for for years, he was Dusty's assistant booker after Gerald Briscoe and was real involved in the office there. And J.J. loved me after a while. So I said, yeah, I know J.J. Dillon. He's uh, Vince's uh, personal assistant. He said, we'll call them and see if they're interested. So I got through to JJ somehow. I called WWF Stanford, Connecticut in the office. Yeah, WWF, how can we help you? He says, yeah, my name's Bella JJ dylan please. And I guess they buzzed JJ and JJ took my call right away because he knew who I was and respected me. So I says, uh, JJ, let me explain the situation to you. You know, I'm the personal assistant for. Giant Gonzalez and Jim Hurd came in and they want us to take a pay cut. We're weighing our options. Um, he can go play European basketball. Maybe if there's a spot for you guys, and, you know, more detailed than that, I was explaining. He says, well, listen, uh, Bonzi, I appreciate the call. Let me run it by Vince. And uh, this is like a Tuesday. And the Giants just had an operation on his foot. He had a spur that they had to cut out. So we were laid up at my parents' house by Jerry Briscoe's house on the lake house on the golf buggy, he had a great time. And uh, J.J. said, hey, let me talk to Vince and I'll get back with you, thank you so much for calling me. So the phone, you know, we hang up and I tell the giant, Where are my parents' house on the lake. I said, well, J.J. said, you know, he's gonna talk to Vince and they might be interested. And About 20 minutes later, the fucking phone rings. It's J.J. Dillon. He says, uh, Fonzie, I uh, talked to Vince and he's interested. When can you guys, Come up and have a meeting. I said, "Well, the Giants just had a spur operation, and you know we're laid up for five or six days. We can come up anytime. Okay, how about tomorrow?" I said, "Perfect." I said, "The Giants got to have a first-class seat, and I'll sit in coach, you know, because he's so big." So he, they put us both in first class. So the limo picked us up, and we get off the plane. Um, a limo picked us up and took us to Vince's house, not the office. So me and a Giant walk into Vince's house. There's Vince in his bright suit with tennis shoes on. Just what you know, all, you know, how I he was eyeing us out and eyeing the giant out and talking to us. And he, so he said, I know you, you're very athletic. That's all he said to me, basically. And, you know, I explained why we're there and Jim heard and all that. And then I said, in fact, they still owe the giant 60 grand, you know, for his next paycheck. And he says, Hey, don't even go back there. I'll give him a 60 grand signing bonus. JJ wrote him a check. So JJ wrote him a check out. Don't even go back to WGD. Fuck those people. And, uh, the, uh, and you, Fonzie, and the referee, bam, because I'm his assistant, you know, and, and referee. So I do two jobs which been slight. And uh, Giants says, Vince, I haven't been home in a couple of years for Christmas. Do you mind if I go home and I start, you know, after the first of the year? He said, of course, you know, of course. uh, Give us time to think and put the gimmick on you and all that. And he said, Fonzie, do you want to start with uh, the Giant in January? I said, no, sir. I I wouldn't mind starting as soon as possible. He said, JJ, put him on the sheet. So JJ opens his book and starts putting me here, there, there. And JJ gives me a sheet. And I got a full week of um, work, you know, without the Giant. I'm going to be referee. And it said... MSJ, I said, J.J., where the hell is MSJ? He said, Fonzie, that's Madison Square Gardens. I didn't, because WCW didn't go up there. I've never been to Madison Square. That's Vince's territory. So my first week with WWF, I'm in Madison Square Gardens. I'm the new referee. And I got hit. I hope you took Chimel's place. <laughs> Listen, I got hit with all the referees because I'm walking into – Madison Square Gardens, I don't want to look like the audience, you know what I mean? So I had a beautiful suit on, I had a Submariner Rolex, I had nice luggage, my hair in place. I walk in and all the referees are in Zubas and T-shirts and, you know, Tennessee's casual because we're busting our ass, you know, on the road. And uh, Vince called me right over to the ring and said, hey, all you referees, come over here. He said, uh, you see how Fonzie's dressed? That's how I want Everybody dress <laughs> that's oh, wow. heat, that's heat. Heat. <laughs> and be, and pay for me. Be the and the referees got David and Reverend, why'd you fuck fun? I said, well, you know, I want to look good, guys. So I got a little heat. And plus, you know, I had to die and get all kind of pri- extra perks and shit and making as much money as those got, you know what I mean? So it was pretty freaking cool. Now so that's see, how I got
3: to WWF. You mentioned a little earlier that you were on the very first Raw. Is this the, is this, when you went to MSG, was this your, the Raw, or was this your, just your first appearance? A
2: well, my, my first week in WWF was uh, Madison Square Gardens, plus wherever else we were. And then Vince had, uh, I guess like a month after I was there, he wanted to start Monday Night Raw at the Manhattan Center. Right. Um, and go, you do one live show, one Monday Night Live, and Tuesday and Wednesday we would tape for the next two Monday nights, you know, only one Monday Night Live role, but I was on that Monday Night referee. So my team is not make me famous or anything, but just the fact that I was on the first Monday Night Raw makes me cool.
1: So, what did you think about that first Monday Night Raw? Not the show itself, but the concept. I mean, did you have any idea that this would become nope. the, the, the cornerstone of WWE? No.
2: Nope. Nobody did, but Vince. You thought it was another show. I thought it was a little more than another show, but I didn't get to explain in detail what Vince had in mind. You know, Vince has these big thoughts, and look how it turned out, you know, the longest-running TV series in the history of uh, television, you know, and still was going to go off for another 20 years, I think, and I hope. Um, so nobody knew the, how big it was going to turn out, but after a while, we did, you know. After a while, Monday Night Raw was Monday Night Raw, brother.
1: Yeah, it's just interesting. You know, sometimes you, you do something, you think, oh, this is going to be something great, and then it doesn't work out that way. And then sometimes you have something that you put in place, and think this might be good, and all of a sudden it turns into something, you know, iconic like Monday Night Raw.
2: Yeah, the same thing with ECW. Now it's still a cult following worldwide. we only ran five years. We did 22 oh, interviews. Right. I was on all 22, and I had a great spot. That's why I'm still relevant to the business. That's why I'm doing the shows. I'll read out my my booking sheet for this for this month, and you guys say what? Um, uh, so, that, um, what was I saying? Fuck, I forgot. Talk about
1: iconic shows. Hey, before before we before we go on a little bit, wh- what happened to Giant
2: Gonzalez? Well, well yeah, out for three years wasn't doing too good he became diabetic he used to tell me all the time you know Fonzie I'm going to die young because like Andre died at 43 and all the Giants die young and he used to break my heart to hear him say that but his health was failing and being on the road seven days a week seven to ten days off three isn't an easy feat for me and you John or me and Jerry Briscoe that's not an easy feat for us can you imagine being eight foot and not being in good shape after a while being diabetic and all that and after that uh it was just too much for him and he made a bunch of money he might have made a couple maybe a million a million million and a half in the five or six years he or four or five years he was in the business so he did really well went back to Argentina and then eventually you know I stayed in touch with him and then eventually I got a phone call from his brother he was deathly sick and he passed at the age of 47.
1: What did he do back in Argentina? Did, did he just retire
2: and... Yeah, live yeah, he money? retired. He retired. He made money. He was very frugal with his money. Not with me. He used to, you know, buy me dinner and all that. But um, uh, almost like the chic uh, Sabu's uncle, the original chic not the bowling pin Sheik. Uh, I would go eat with the chic once in a while. Uh, and he would say, order like you're buying and I'll pay. You know, so... He's, if I know you're buying, I'm gonna order a steak and a lobster.
1: If I know I'm buying, I'm gonna order. I do that a steak. to Mister Briscoe all the time. Um, I just no. order stuff. Up. I order stuff on Amazon and charge it to him.
3: I wonder um, what my Amazon. I got my Amazon bill the other day, and I what? The, I don't. I don't even recall this Texas uh, gimmick store. <laughs> and
2: you guys do a podcast on a regular basis, a weekly, a monthly?
1: How do you guys hook up? Zoom. Jerry hired me. In uh, 1995, December, 1995.
3: Boy, you guys both have something in common, man. I'm responsible for both of your asses.
1: The, the two greatest things Mr. Briscoe ever did was hire me
2: and you Fonzie.
3: I love it. I love it. Congratulations. Andy. You've had an outstanding
2: career. You did really well for yourself, right? Uh, I think, I think so. I had to
1: make Mr. Briscoe proud. He right. hired me and then beat me up about 2000 times.
3: The longest reigning SmackDown champion of all time, Bell Alfonso
0: by now you know that everything is crazy overseas and well that's created some volatility in the market we actually saw rates tick down a little bit this week we don't know how long it'll stay that way all the experts are predicting that there is going to be a rate hike this month in the month of march some are saying 25 basis points others are saying 50 what does that mean it means waiting will cost you money And by the way, I want to mention, this is still a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity just based on your real estate values. You see, all of a sudden, your house is worth considerably more than it was just a couple of years ago. And as a result, you can use that newfound equity to change your life. We're routinely helping our podcast listeners take their 30-year loan and pay it off in half the time. And how can they afford to do that without their payments going sky high? We get rid of all their other debt. And I mean it. As a heads up, what would you do you had no credit card debt just like that it was all paid off how much easier would life be if those car payments they're out of here no more car payments that is the story that we're able to help our friends and family with at savewithconrad.com you see the interest you pay on your credit cards not tax deductible and sky high the interest you pay on your car loans buddy where is that going what if we could restructure all of your debt use some of this newfound equity, and at the same time, get you out of debt faster. You see, what we're talking about is reducing the time on your mortgage. Yes, we're going to get you a great rate, but if you're in a 30-year loan, think about what your life looks like 30 years from now. Man, life gets a lot easier when you're completely debt-free, and that's what we want to help you do. And by the way, you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. And oh, as a heads up, if you've been thinking, hey, man, I like my house, but my kitchen's kind of outdated, What if we could get you the cash you need to turn your average kitchen into something your wife loves and it wouldn't change your monthly payment at all? Why wouldn't you do that? You see, you'd be reinvesting back in your own property. That's going to make your house worth even more. And oh yeah, you can do it with cheaper monthly payments at SaveWithConrad.com. Now I know it sounds too good to be true, but I want you to go check out our reviews for yourself. See what some of our new family members are saying at conradreviews.com you'll see there we've got over a thousand verified reviews our average rating is 4.72 and if we were a restaurant with a thousand reviews and a 4.72 rating I know where you're eating dinner and I know where you need to do your next loan it's savewithconrad.com NMLS number six five zero eight four. equal housing lender oh and did I mention no house payments for two months that's savewithconrad.com
1: We've had a great run. We've had so much fun. And what we did, Bill, was we just, we were uh, during COVID and we were talking uh, on text and on the phone. And somebody said, a friend of ours, Yoshi, said, why don't you guys do a podcast? And I, said, I don't don't think anybody even want to listen to it if we did. And they said, well, no, no, you might put smiles on people's faces. And that's the reason we did it. We did it just to tell stories and and let people have some fun. You know, we we don't bury anybody. We don't try to bring up. Yeah, anybody. you
2: see how we're talking now. It's all cool.
1: You know, I'm not burying nobody. I would never do that. No, and no, no. And most most, most of our guys don't. You know, we don't tell them not to, but most of them just don't. It's just like sitting around the locker room or in a bar or in a car. It's just exactly. for us.
2: Exactly. 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 You guys want to hear how I got into ECW and had a five-year run and made a quarter million dollars working two days a week for five years there?
3: Let's hear it. Yeah. that's <laughs> okay. right. Absolutely. If you could bury Paul Heyman, we'll... we'll I don't can bury Paul Heyman.
1: And you can also bury Tony Chimmel. I mean, like, for real. You can actually kill him and bury him.
3: Yeah. And we'll We'll we the shovels. We'll yeah,
2: My, Mike Yoda was the uh, one that treated me the best, but... All those, all those reps up there thought they were the shit, you know what I mean? And better than me or whatever. And that was the last one they hired. But anyway. Um, so so you got any Tony Chimel stories? Not really, because I didn't hang with him. I was with the Giant my whole time. So it was me. <laughs> and the Giant didn't really want anybody in the car with us, so, so it was just me. I drove and took him all over the fucking planet for three years. Just me and him. Very rarely. Did somebody jump in the car with us on an emergency? They would, but you know, we'd give him a ride to the next town. But Giant, just like me and him, you know, He's kind of a not shy guy, but just wanted to be me and him.
3: Uh So not shy guy when he bangs on your door and said, "Come on!" That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not a shy guy. <laughs> I was really. You embarrassed don't have to say night. he's
1: not shy. We
2: yeah. yeah. you know he's not. I shy. was embarrassed that night, but it was—it's a great story. People. <laughs> like it you know and it's the no, truth i swear this is a true story you know
1: i feel like um, Kyoto. Like you and kyota seem 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 a lot alike like two 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 good
2: guys yeah they just fired him
1: he yeah 30 exactly.
2: something years can you believe it and he was still in shape and all that i don't know why Vince does that but vince doesn't have any problems i, I still so, like so vince.
3: while bill so Wild bill you you have that great run with wwe uh with the giant gonzalez but but you're you're Bill Alfonso is Mr. ECW. How did you make that, that switch over from WWE? Did you make it immediately from WWE to, to ECW or was there? Absolutely. Did you go back it, was, to, uh,
2: it was WWF. WWF. So sorry. Uh, how I got released, the giant went home, you know, you finished up and went home. And for some reason in that few months the business took it down. You know, they weren't selling out everywhere. The biz- business was down about 70% or something. And Vince came up to me and said, Fonzie, or Pat, or Pat Patterson came up to me and said, Fonzie, unfortunately, we're going to have to release you from your contract because the business isn't doing good. But don't worry, when we come to Florida, you work on the Florida shows and we use you as much as we can. So the business picks back up, we're going to use you. So remember I said they taped, three Monday Night Raw's, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So I got released after doing the three Monday Night Raw's. So I was still on TV for a month, you know, on Monday Night Raw. So Paul Heyman found out that I got released and Paul Heyman calls me. The reason Paul Heyman called me is because in the early 80s, Bob Roop was booker in Florida and I was the assistant booker for Bob Roop for Eddie Graham in Florida. Had that great job like you did. I earned that spot. And... Paul Heyman was there as a young kid in a pair of uh, Levi's and tennis shoes and a T-shirt. He came down like I went to Texas, was trying to break into business. He came down with a guy named Tombstone, wasn't in the business too long. And he was going to do the loop for a few months with the Tombstone and, you know, and try to get a spot. He wanted to be a manager, uh, but there was no spot for him. So Tombstone got his notice and he was leaving and Paul Heyman comes up to me, assistant booker for Florida, and says, hey, Fonzie, you know, we're leaving in two weeks. Is there any way possible you think I could go to the ring and act as Tombstone's manager, you know, for the two weeks? And Tombstone was working with Scott Hall, Scott Hall was Scott Hall, Hall, Hall. giving a big press name and cover him, one, two, three, everybody, and I said, well, Paul Heyman, let me think about it. Okay, that sounds good. But look, you wearing a pair of Levi's with holes in them. You got an old set of converse on the t-shirt. Is there? Do you have money to go buy a suit and you know look like a fucking manager? He said yes, yes. So I didn't know his parents were millionaires, lived in Scarsdale. His dad's a big time money family. Of course, he went out and bought a beautiful suit, did his hair, bought the telephone, everything, and. um, so he did the loop for two weeks, Monday, Tuesday, West Palm, Tampa, Miami, Jacksonville, spot shows in Orlando for two weeks, and then they left. And he thanked me for that for letting him come through there because I had a little stroke. I was assistant booker to Bob Root. Bob Root wasn't a genius. I was running the office kinda because I was just doing what Dusty would do. I was helping Bob Root so much, and he was getting all the credit, and I got a little bit of credit, but. Uh, so Paul Heyman thanked me. And the next thing I know, Paul Heyman's a big star and uh, for Vern Ganya and, and all that and TBS and everything. And uh, so I just left WWE, got my notice, and they said they'd use me and so on and so on. But I get a phone call the first week I left WWE, um, WWF. I don't have a contract. I'm a little depressed. I said, damn it. You know, but I saved money. And. Uh, I was okay financially, but I was you know, I want to work.
3: This is basically the first time you've been out of work since you conned me on uh, 106 Albany. <laughs> <obviously>. correct? <laughs> May of 1980,
2: that was May of 1980 when I met you, Jerry Briscoe. And I've been on the road until when 1995. Wow, and 15 years you got oh, out of me. <laughs> I, I got a phone call from Paul Heyman because I was good to him. Remember, I told you the story, I let him manage the guy and all that. And he never forgot that. He said, hey, Fonzie, Paul said, hey, Paul, damn, I've seen you on TV. Yes, good for you. And Vern Gandhi and all that. Congratulations. I said, hey, what, why are you calling me? He says, well, I got this company in Philly called ECW. I said, what the fuck's an ECW? I've never worked for a company other than mainstream. You know, Ted Turner, Vince, all the big terror Florida. He said, well, with this upstart company, we're hardcore, well, I got this vision, I got a perfect spot for you for four weeks. You come in, because you're still on Monday Night Raws for two more weeks, and you come in as an anti-ECW, your sports entertainment, because Vince wants the doctor, his wife, and the two kids at ringside. Our target audience is males from 19 to 30 years old, hardcore fighting tables and chairs and shit. So I went in there and was anti all the ECW stuff and was like a conservative referee and you know, would stop the match with a little bit of juice and so on and so on. So I was getting heat. And after the four weeks, 911 chokeslammed me and I was done. But Paul Heyman had a vision and everybody knows Taz. You guys heard of Taz, right? Right. Uh, he's big time with AEW commentator, or whatever. And Taz had like four or five gifts. Give- Monkey Boy, Tasmania, didn't get over until he got hurt, was out for a little while. Then when he came back in, he came back as himself, Taz. And then he got over. Usually we get over with, you know, like I'm over because I'm a, a hyper and Paul Heyman says, just hyper. You're a gimmick.
3: You're a gimmick. A gimmick.
2: <laughs> so Paul Heyman thought it would be a good idea for me, put me as a manager with Taz, and It worked. And people bought it and they loved it, but I didn't know how to, you would think I would know how to do a promo, but I never did, you know, I've done eight promos in 25 years of being a referee, you know. Hey, you threw him over the top rope. I seen this one. So I was having trouble doing promos and Paul Heyman says, hey, Fonzi, just treat it like a shoot. You know you're gonna be at the in Philly, you know you're gonna work against this guy. And I said, okay, let me try it. Then I became one take Fonzie. I said, yeah, next Tuesday night, daddy, I'm going to be on the broadcast. And I was good. I mean, it was natural. And then Taz didn't need me. And they put me with Sabu on the first pay-per-view, barely legal. I turned on Taz and went with Sabu. And uh, so I was there five years until Vince bought the company.
3: You know, you're with your promos. I've known you forever, as we've discussed. And uh when I saw you cutting promos, they were, they were off the chart. Great. But that that really didn't surprise me because you're all you're always a smack talker. I mean, you know, we'd be in the ring sometime, a ring sometimes, to fans say something wise and you just turn. <laughs> And without the guy here, and it, just start cutting a promo basically on a guy sometimes. Well, you know, the business rubbed off on me. I
2: yeah. was around all the great pro guys.
3: So, so you with that microphone, after, after a while, it just seemed natural coming from me. It didn't seem, and it, 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 it seemed like it was your character because it basically was your character because they told you just to look at it as a shoot. And that's yeah, the Mel no, Alfonso I know that would look at it like that. they just told me to
2: tone it up a little bit, you know, be 30% more hyper, you know, and and it absolutely worked. And I was on 22, I was on all the main events, I was at 22 pay-per-views there, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not bragging on the quarter million dollars, but um, a quarter million dollars for a small company that nobody heard of, ECW, and, and working Saturday and Friday and Saturday is fucking pretty big payday, you know, in five years. Damn, it's fifty grand a year, but working just weekends and, and
1: enjoying it. I saw a quote that was attributed to you that, that Paul Heyman never bounced the check to you because of the story, you know, about Paul Heyman, you know, but you
2: said that uh, you, all your stuff always cleared, right? Well, you know, the company was making $13 million a year, but we were spending $14 million. We were borrowing money from Paul to pay Peter. We had no corporate sponsors, and some guys were getting small money. Some guys were getting better money. Paul paid me decent. Really good, and for some reason, he took care of me. I'm in the main event with Van Dam and Sabu, and all that stuff. And uh, in fact, he gave me the uh, second largest check I've ever got. Vince paid me five grand for WrestleMania. I referee two matches in WrestleMania nine. Five grand is not a bad payday. So we did the first pay per view, barely legal. I'm proud of this to say that, but you know, I'm embarrassed. uh, uh, John, you made fucking way. Five grand is nothing to you on those WrestleManias, but. Because, uh, so Paul, we did the first pay-per-view barely legal in ECW, and he said, Fonzie, I don't know what to pay you, you know what I mean? In the main event, this and that. I says, Well, pay me the same thing Vince paid me at WrestleMania. Say, how much? I said, Five grand. He cut me a check for five grand, and boom. <laughs> so, he the little in the ECW,
1: uh, Fonzie, he, isn't that strange negotiating when the, when, the, when the guy who's paying you negotiates with you about how, what to pay you and ask you? Yes. Yeah, I didn't know how to
2: answer that. I didn't know. I wouldn't no, have I either. I, yeah, so I wouldn't have either. It was a you good know, answer, I guess.
1: And it's one of those so, things where you say five grand, and he goes, okay, and you're like, damn.
2: <laughs> I should have said 12. <laughs> I don't think I would have got 12, but I was thrilled because I figured the biggest paycheck I got from in the wrestling business for me was WrestleMania, five grand, the referee, a match, um, and then he matches, so... I didn't know what to ask for, you know. I was still Bill, able to get that.
3: Bill, you brought up brought up a real interesting character, Sabu. I, I know uh, you 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 went back uh tell us a little about Sabu and how you met Sabu, the, the original Sheik and and, and your conversations with him because I know you Well know. I told you
2: when I uh how I met the original Sheik and uh I was traveling around Texas with Dave, right? And uh Dory Funk called the erickson said hey said they would send up guys and do tv you know there was three different tvs in texas so uh, the amarillo and there was a whole different territory so uh they um i guess dory called fritz and said hey send me david sierra send me this guy send me this guy and send uh dave's brother the referee so I said, i'm thrilled i'm gonna go up and work a house show in amarillo or might have been lubbock and the main event was the Chic and Terry Funk, as I said, in the chain match. And the Chic, you know, was the Chic, And Terry Funk said, hey, Fonzie, go over and ask the Sheik if you got a blade I need a blade. And I went, uh, excuse me, Sheik, uh, Terry Funk wants to know if you got a blade. I was kind of embarrassed. He goes like this, does it look like I know what a blade is, kid? You know, uh, So anyway, the finish of the match was, you know, controversy. They were bleeding and all kinds of stuff. And the sheep pulled out a pencil and ripped my shirt up. And he stabbed me in the arm. I still got the lead mark right there from the stab where the sheep, He didn't mean to stab me, but maybe he did, you know. But he (laughs) tore me up and beat me up. and said. uh... So when I went to WCW and they put me with Tad, put me with Sabu, I told him that story and immediately that's his uncle who trained him and said I was over with Sabu for the sheep stabbing me and shit and showed him the lead mark and stuff so we clicked instantly plus I was good at doing my promos because I've been with the cast for a year you know so I was one take Fonzie and him and I just clicked good and um I just spent a couple weeks in fact I'm with him uh this month doing a big convention in Ohio and I'm I just did a seminar with him and some school and some appearances with him. lady. His body is so beat up from, if you ever saw Sabu, it was violent tables and going through all this crazy bumps, man. He could barely freaking walk. We just did a guest appearance for GCW. his this new company. They're kind of doing pretty good. We did it at Hammerstein Ballroom in New York. And we were doing a thing they we weren't advertised lights off lights on there we are in the rain Sebu pie paste the guy with the chair we get a big pop and all that so we had to set up a chair from the floor to the chair to the apron for him to get in the ring. his body's just yeah. terrible and plus he just lost his spouse melissa the yeah. His, yeah. his girlfriend or wife uh
1: he, he uh let no, I, I me cut you off he, no. I just, great story about sabu when bobby Duncombe jr passed away bobby and i were were tag team partners in fact we, we thought we were going to go somewhere then bobby's dad and bobby both wanted to play more football bobby played a little more football and then he got hurt he had tons of surgeries and i think that's you know where some of his problems started but when he passed away i did the eulogy for for bobby's funeral and sabu came because he was good friends with bobby and i remember him being on the phone with paul Heyman, and Heyman was wanting him to come to a show and, and sabu said this is more important and I always just I always had tons of respect for Sabu and and, and love for him for, for doing that for, for a friend in Bobby Duncan. I thought I thought that was really
2: cool. I was yeah, Sabu's a pretty stand-up guy, and he's business as hell, but he believes what he believed, you know. He wanted to be a Bobby Duncan junior screener, you know. And hey, I was fortunate enough to work with Bobby Sr. And, and and the kid too. So it was pretty cool, man. I've come senior across was a, a big old man, wasn't he? Yes, he Less. Junior
1: was too. Junior was just a little more, he muscled. Bob muscled. Junior yeah. was a great athlete. Junior started all four years of, at uh, University of Texas, and Mr. Briscoe will bring up the fact that his team never beat Oklahoma. <laughs> Bobby hated that. Booker T used to bring that up all the time. <laughs> but one time, Bobby told the bus to pull over in Japan. He wanted to fight Booker over Booker down in the.
0: <laughs>
3: I love your Booker. I love your Booker. <laughs> Billy, Billy, I, one of the great, one of the, I will say great thing because it was life and death with you, but one of the big stories always circulating about you, you nearly bled out in a match. There, describe that scene and what happened during the match, and what caused the, the bleed out, and what happened at the hospital. Okay,
2: there was. So
3: many fantastic
2: matches and great athletes and great entertainers at ECW. So, if you ask Paul Heyman to this day, hey, name one of your favorite matches out of that five year run you guys were doing pay per views and so on and so on, he would say Fonzie and Beulah, two non wrestlers. So, I worked in Angle where she was a manager for Tommy Dreamer and I was managing Sabu and Van Damme, and we got we built a little angle and we ended up fighting each other. And of course, we stole the show and almost bled out. What happened was, I didn't get juice all the time, so I wasn't a great juice expert. In fact, Jody Hamilton at the armory, my first time getting juice, I let Jody zap me, uh, because he was putting the loaded thing in his in his mask, and he headbutted the referee, and down I go, and he says, I'll zap you, you know what I mean? Uh, I'm not exposing the business, I'm just telling you guys. Uh he zapped me and then I it's
1: really too late, Bill. It's too yeah,
3: late. Yeah, Bill, it's too late. <laughs> also,
2: Bill, Bill, if this was 1992
1: or 1982, it might make I'd be stretched.
3: Yeah. I'd be stretched. i could be this. coming through that camera there. So <laughs> so Jody
2: gave me and I got really good juice and I slid, I flinched a little bit. That's why I got good juice. And he said, Hey kid, you flinch. I said, Well, I didn't never had a blade in my head, you know. <laughs> but uh So back to the Bula Fonzie mats, we worked the angle. And for some reason, at at that particular time, I think it was 97, um, Turner was stealing our talent. It was taking the Sandman and, oh, when I walked into the dressing room at at ECW, I walked in, course, my suit and the Samaritan and the Louis Vuitton, beautiful, came from the big territory. I walk in and there's Sandman, Tommy Dreamer, Taz, all these guys. I didn't know who the fuck they were. I see nobody I recognized. I said, damn. But Paul Heyman made all these guys big stars for uh, so so eventually, oh, so um, after a couple of years, when Paul developed these guys, they were getting offers to go to WCW. And for some reason, Paul Heyman in the ECW office thought I was the middleman because Kevin Sullivan and Dustin all they were getting our guys. And they thought I was a mode or going, you know, going behind Bohemian's back getting Sandman a gig and all this, but I wasn't. I didn't, they, they did just call the Sandman. They didn't have to call me to get Sandman. And I didn't, I didn't even know this was going on. So the office, ECW office thought I got big juice to try to save my job, but that wasn't the case. I had no idea they thought I was going behind their back helping, you know, the boys go to WCW. I, I didn't, that, that's not the truth. So what happened was um, we designed a match. It was short, two non-wrestlers, and I got my little gimmick ready, my thing, and, and Beulah hit me with the cooking sheet. Down I go, I get a little color, and then we continue the match. We do no wrestling stuff. You know, she uh, puts me in the thing, hits me with a chain, all kinds of silly shit. If you ever watch it, you like it, uh, John. Seven minutes. So um, when she hit me with the cooking sheet, I couldn't get the get my gimmick out fast enough, and she was coming towards me. So at the last second before she grabbed me, I finally got it. And went like this, and I gaffed myself terrible. And I must have hit an artery or something. And I bled. It was the bloodiest match in ECW history. It's pretty cool to have that um, uh, in my in my uh, uh, in my deal. Uh. So I looked Lost so much blood when I went back and I, I got the juice before the match even started basically. And I worked for seven minutes. And of course I took a bunch of aspirin to thin my blood out before the match. So like, you know, the juice flows better and shit. And uh, I get to the back, the paramedics are working on me and they couldn't stop the bleeding. And so finally they put this big steel thing on my head and take me up and rush me to the hospital to the hospital, head trauma, you, they take you right in. If you've got a broken arm, you got to wait, but head trauma, they take you right in. So, they took me right in and the nurse starts unwrapping my thing. I said, well, please be careful because I'm bleeding. So, she said, don't tell me. I've been a nurse for 20 years. So. so, she does my thing and the juice squirts out, squirts all over her face and all over her white thing. I was happy as hell. So, the, so the doctors came in and were sewing me up and and uh, finally fixed me up, stopped the bleeding. I got m- multiple stitches inside and out. It was terrible. They wanted to admit me in the hospital. I said, no, I got to flight out. You know, it's seven o'clock in the morning. I'm going back to Tampa, you know? He said, well, you got to sign a release. And then and, and they're wheeling me out in the wheelchair. They said, whatever you do, don't smoke a cigarette, don't smoke pot, don't no alcohol, and um, no
3: pills. They didn't know who they were talking to. So,
2: <laughs> so, 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 uh, they will be out in the wilderness. There's Sandman. He has a 44 ounce cocktail waiting for me to call the lights to the joint. Puts a Percocet in my mouth, paid no attention to the doctor. So I should have been dead, you know, but that's how we <laughs> <laughs> were. Well, that's one of Paul Hayden's favorite matches. If you ask him, cause he's not going to put Taz over Van Damme. So that's easy out for him. Plus it was really good entertainment. And because I bled so
0: happy, that's why. Time to tell you about something I'm super passionate about, protecting your family. Yes, this is a life insurance ad for GoliathLife.com. But to me, this is really about peace of mind. Think about insurance for a second. We all get medical and auto insurance, yet we never even know if we're going to have a need for it. Let me let you in on a little secret. You need life insurance. We're all going to die. Now, as you let that reality sink in, think about what would happen if your family stopped having your income tomorrow. If you don't have a plan for that, you need to visit goliathlife.com. And I mean, right now, and just personally, I've lost two friends in their forties this past year and a half, and I don't even want to think about what their families would be going through. Had they not had life insurance, if you don't have it, get it, protect your family. And I suggest you go to goliathlife.com because they've made the process of getting affordable life insurance. no hidden fees, no upsells, no hassle, hell, not even a phone call. Goliath Life is life insurance in your hands, on your time. Get multiple quick quotes right now from the comfort of your own home and begin your application in a few easy clicks right now at GoliathLife.com.
1: Ponzi, what do you think the appeal is? I mean, I have my ideas, but you were there. You know, you have Sabu, Taz, Van Damme, you... Tommy Dreamer, the Dudleys, so many people that were such big names from ECW that even if they had done nothing else, they would still be big names. And like you say, that was only about a five-year run, really, uh, when when you guys were rolling. What do you think the appeal is of ECW that it's lasted
2: this long? It was some type of phenomenon. It was different. There was only two companies. After the territories closed up, Florida – Georgia, Mid-Atlantic, Tech, sector, they all closed up and went viral on you know, Monday nights and uh, national TV and stuff. Um, there was no, no companies doing anything. There's A couple of small companies trying to make it, but nobody was doing anything. And Paul Heyman, who was actually brilliant for the wrestling business, his mind was really good. And he had this idea and it was uh, the violence and stuff they had never seen before. Characters they have never seen, they didn't know who the fuck Sabu and Sandman and Tommy were, Paul Heyman made these guys big stars. It was because of the violence. Um, and it controlled violence, you know? Uh, it was just phenomenal. And um, I think the reason Vince bought us out because uh, Vince's son, I like ECW, you know, he liked ECW, and and, uh, uh, and I think Vince floated us a million dollars to continue, you know, gave Paul Heyman a million dollars to keep going, because, you know, he liked the business, and what, what he was trying, I guess he knew he was going to buy all the rights to it, now you can see it you on know, Peacock, from beginning every episode of TV, every pay-per-view, with a Peacock, there it is, the music is different, which sucks, but, you um, it's a worldwide phenomenon. I don't know, you know, I'm telling you why I think it is because of the violence and the new characters and the smart marks knew it was something besides Vince and Turner, you know what I mean? And, oh, let's give it a chance and it just took off. And hey, I, hey, Bill, yes, Bill,
3: sir. did you think, uh, you know, with with the violence and everything, do you think with the proper funding that the company would have made it down the line, or do you think that net for that violence would have just just passed them by? It,
2: well, we never know that answer.
3: No, because, you know, we never know. But I think it would have continued
2: for a while, because we were just doing, we weren't selling out like Vince does and he's big. We were running small things like the Manhattan Center, Hammerstein Ballroom and all that, selling those places out and doing big business at 22 pay-per-view. We were doing really good. So I think it would have continued on for a while, you know. You know was, not, we're
3: doing better than WCW at the time. So, you know, we're, we're I don't doing know if we were drawing
2: better, but we had people's interests. We, you know, we were the talk of wrestling, the smaller marks, as they call them, were talking about us.
1: Bill, I want to ask you, I saw, I saw an interview you did. I think I was just looking it up right there. I was trying to get the, the Englishman's name right. Cause he's so good at what he does. James is a wrestling Jerry, What's his last name, Jerry? You did an interview with him. That was actually. I
3: don't know, but he, he is very good. He's I've so good.
1: Uh, he has such a great way about him. He's so knowledgeable, wrote a book about the rock, but I saw an interview you did with him, Fonzie, uh, with James of uh, the wrestling shoot. When I mean, you talked about blackjack Mulligan, uh, beating up somebody asking about speed. I don't know if Jerry ever
2: heard this story. and I, I, figured, uh, Jerry, I would like to hear we, it. We were in a dressing room doing TV at 106 North Albany. Then we got to drive four hours to Miami, you know, after TV. So uh, I'll tell you, I'll think of the guy's name. So we're all there watching the monitor, Mulligan sitting there. Now, Ken Barry was a big star. Barry Windham was fantastic. What a fucking athlete he was. Uh, in the business, and Kendall Windham was just franking in the business, his brother, and we were all in the dressing room with a bunch of guys. But the guy's name was Buck Robey. So Mulligan, so Buck Robey walks in, and and Buck Roby. Oh, yeah, Buck,
3: Buck, says, wasn't uh, no, Buck wasn't no coward either. Buck, Buck, Buck. No, was Buck was but Mulligan
1: fun.
2: was an actual giant, you know. Buck but was anyway, Texas or Louisiana, right? Right. Yeah,
3: yes. Louisiana.
2: Um, Louisiana. So, Buck Roeby walks in, and we're all watching the monitor. He just puts it out there and says, hey, Mulligan, you got any speed? And Mulligan, Cape Adrian, doesn't say nothing because this kid's there or whatever. He, you, know, <laughs> you don't ask everybody in the fucking dressing room, hey, you got to hit a speed. You got to work it. You don't have to do that, you know? But that's so Mulligan,
3: how Buck Robbie was. Yeah, especially <laughs> with M- his kids Mulligan,
2: Mulligan didn't answer him, and he says, hey, don't Cape. Kay- Fade me. Everybody knows you're the biggest speed head in the business. And Buck Rovey kept walking to that little dressing room by Charlie's office. Right. And Mulligan got up and walked into that dressing room and closed the door. And all you could hear was... Woman <laughs> fucking Buck Rovey comes out of there with an eye this fucking big. And that was the end of it. You know, it just set it
3: straight. <laughs> Bill, so that that, one, that little cubbyhole outside of Charlie's office—that was a safe bad. in there. Yeah, there was, there was a, a safe in there, there. but it was that's what that room was basically used for for so many years there. I mean, you had an issue with somebody, you usually ended up in that room with a the safe there because. Of <laughs> the... <laughs> <laughs> like does, Doesn't that say something bad
1: about the territory when you had a room designed for that?
3: Well, it wasn't designed; it was a safe room, <laughs> man. But that's <laughs> a, that, uh, safe, a safe room. room. Yeah, you go and you take a guy in there, and they were, they, 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 you were safe, <laughs> right, Bill? I mean, that thing—many, many a face got busted in that damn room. Charlie, Charlie, walk out, Charlie, push those glasses up over his, over his nose. There, what time you leaving?
2: <laughs> wow, what what a great career I've had with you guys. You know, I can't believe I. Spent over a year on the road trying to break in like I told you about Texas and worked six times in Texas and I worked a couple of times in Mid-Atlantic then came home May 1980 I came to you and told my story in the right place at the right time the guy got fired and I was hired Tuesday and worked all week at the end of the week you said we uh, congratulations you're full time with us but remember this uh you can leave as fast as you came i'll never forget that Terry. Uh, so,
1: so bill uh which one in all seriousness was the greater sportatorium the one on katie's and industrial or the one on albany
2: the one on six north albany oh come on <laughs> Where'd to go bill <laughs> well i'm a florida kid that's why i broke <laughs> in and we had so much time oh, so did you know so did you guys there uh but, you know, I got to stick up for my hometown. I refereed so many important matches and uh, stuff. And uh, this was the belt that Jack had and Harley Race. Oh, I've worked with Dory Funk, Harley Race, and Dusty and Flair, every world champion. This is a replica, of course. But um, I was so fortunate, man. And, you know, and been all over the world.
3: Bill Bill Eddie Eddie Graham took to Japan a, Eddie 13 Graham. times. That's unusual for a referee manager.
2: 13 yeah. times in Japan.
3: It's crazy. Uh, Eddie Graham took a special liking to you because you were so versatile. You you'd help Eddie out with a lot of his uh his properties and stuff like that because you knew so damn many people in this city here. But uh yeah. Eddie was a really unique character. We we talk about Eddie, but the, the respect that Eddie had in this town was just unbelievable. We talk about some of the stories when when he's trying to fly out of the airplane. Were you involved in any of those stories? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Eddie liked me after a while. Of course, it took me a
2: while to learn, to earn their respect, you know, like Matsuda and all those guys. But Eddie saw me getting a fight in the parking lot with a mark or something and loved it. And I was his boy after then. And I would take a great bump or whatever, and I could carry all the finishes over and so on. So Eddie took a, a good liking to me and I was his guy after a while, you know, and Matsuda loved me. So, uh, but I had to earn the respect and Eddie was soft spoken with me and wasn't a real talkative guy. But when he said something that meant something, And he'd always put me over and he seen me in a couple of fights and loved it. And uh, Eddie used to, so if a, a, a bar comes up to the office and wants to learn to be a wrestler, they're, have Brian Blair come down and, and uh, work out with him. But, you know, he would have to do 100. Uh, Brian Blair was in shape. He could do 100 hinge squats, push-ups and all that, and blow the guy up before he got in the ring. And then really stretch him. And Eddie Graham gave him the office like that. And then Brian would really beat the fuck out of these guys stiff and, you know, make them cry and crawl out of the 106 North Albany. And I was there for a lot of that refereeing those little tryouts and being the third man in the ring.
1: Were you ever ever on the plane with Eddie when Eddie had had a few and he's the pilot?
2: Yeah. um, Well, not too much, but here's how it went. Only the main event guys would be four or five guys in the plane or four guys plus the pilot. And I think Jack Briscoe didn't make Miami and I would ride with the Preliminary guys, the first, second, and third matches, like Scott McGee, which is a great talent. Don't mean to call him, but the first matches, I was right with the first match guys until later I met all the big shots and rode with them. But Dusty came up to me during the match and said, Hey, let those guys leave early because they got a 300 mile drive back to Tampa and you can jump in a plane with me. Uh, Eddie's flying us and Jack didn't come. So there's a spot for you and let those guys leave early and then I'll take you home once we land and so and I wasn't a big drinker at all I was a young kid in my early 20s 23 years old or whatever and I you know they were giving me shots of freaking Jack Daniels and I was getting a big buzz on and Eddie Graham was drinking with us too and making was just scaring the hell out of us and turn one motor off and turn it back on the plane to go sideways it was crazy <laughs> and he's drunk and he's drunk yeah, all oh good. yeah he was buzzed yeah
3: it's and he's turning one of the place.
2: motors off on the plane Yeah,
1: the in the air
2: yeah the plane a lot yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's a wonder faa didn't meet us at the runway well they no.
3: did several times <laughs> yeah it's a wonder back-
2: mortician didn't meet you at the runway <laughs> absolutely absolutely oh uh so then, wait a minute! Wait a minute!
1: When you turn the motor off, did anybody tell Eddie? Ed, Eddie, that's not that
2: funny? No, no, nope. <laughs> because he would do it again if he told. Oh, that's you know, great, put,
3: Eddie. That's great. If you, if you, if you, you put it, it over, he'd do if, it the whole damn trip, right? <laughs> yeah. If you, if you sell it,
2: then you're really in trouble. If you don't sell it, so you, you got a drunk about guy. You, you got a drunk over. guy
1: flying you on the plane, and you can't do anything because he's liable to turn all the engines off. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. something. It was crazy uh but that <laughs> same night that's the night i sucker punched dusty you guys want to hear that yeah yes so you know we land right and dusty said he would give me a ride home from the air from the little mini airport there's to my that. home and i was so drunk i didn't so they had planned this all out so they're telling me about this trash can This, when we get off the plane there's this big plastic trash can and and he says, Fonzie, everybody kicks that trash can. Mulligan kicked it 45 feet. Listen, you kick it. How far can I'm drunk? And I said, okay. So I run up in that trash can. It was screwed onto the floor. And I took a big bump. They were laughing at me and shit. And I was so drunk, it didn't matter. So I jump in Dusty's. Remember Dusty had that red dually uh, pickup truck, Jerry? Yeah. So we're in that. And he's trying. I'm living in Ebor City with my little wife, you know, and a brand new baby and stuff. And I'm so drunk, I couldn't find my house. And finally, Dusty says, you know, Fonzie, and we're driving around for an hour trying to find your house. And uh, and I said, shut the fuck up. And I sucker punched Dusty. Bam, I hit him in the fucking face. I mean, stiff as hell. So he took me to the little 7-Eleven and threw my bag out and threw me out of his car and drove off. And the cops pull up because I'm drunk in the fucking parking lot at the 7-Eleven and they got me home somehow. They found out where I live. I told them the story about kicking a trash can and Eddie Graham and I was a celebrity to them because I was telling the story, you know what I mean? They couldn't believe the story of uh, I Suck a Bunch of Dusty and all them. so they didn't give me no hassle, but I did Suck a Bunch of Dusty.
3: Well, hey, know,
1: before, before we let you go, I want to ask you one, one story because we had Lex Luger on and Lex- I love the, Lex. Lex is such a pleasant guy, you know, you, you've seen him, you know, in the and, stuff. Him. and the story with him and Brody, you were the referee in the ring that called the finish on the fly to help Lex out. Tell tell the story.
2: Well, for a year, I was in the dressing room where we gave Lex Luger his name. Uh, It was Mike Graham and Dusty and all these guys and Matt Sue, That was Matt Sue's kid. I mean, he loved fucking Lex. He trained him and this and that. And Lex wasn't the, Classic worker, but he was pretty fucking good. You know what I mean? He wasn't like Barry Windham and Kurt Henning and those guys, but he was really good. uh I was in the dressing room when Dusty's—they're trying to think of a name for him, and you know, and Mike Graham says, "How about like a pistol, like a gun or something?" Luger. Hey, Luger. Oh, good. And so he said, Le- "Lex Luger." So I was in the dressing room when they gave him his name, and he started and they pushed him from the start. He had that fantastic physique; it looked freaking great. Not a great worker yet, but never was a great worker. Uh, um, so they were handpicking his opponents, you know, guys that can work, and getting them over in the ring, and working with them on the on the road and stuff. And this was all in Florida, you know, the Luke Jerry money West Palm, Tampa, Miami, and so on and so on. And, um. So they were handpicking his opponents and they were making a big star out of him. And he was getting all these big wins and shit. So the office thought it'd be a good idea. For some reason, it was a bad idea. Um, And actually no office was there. in that uh, happened at the war Memorial in West and Fort Lauderdale, Jerry, they booked Lex Luger against Bruiser Brody in a cage. And now this is, you know, unusual for Lex because he's getting his opponents handpicked. They're taking care of this kid. Now he's in there with this big, terrific fucking uh, superstar. And, you know, uh, Brody could be a little temperamental and so on and so on. And and they gave him a finish and they all agreed to it and stuff. So anyway, we got in. There was a bad book. It should have never happened. And I was the only office personnel there when they booked this, like Dusty wasn't there, Jerry wasn't there. I was in charge of the dressing room that night, giving all the finishes, because I got from Dusty or whatever, and telling all the guys the stuff. And so there was nobody there for Bruiser, or Brody to complain about, or Alexa to complain about, but me, and say, hey, this is the finish, and so on and so on. So the match, they get in the thing, like the cage, and the bell rings, and Luger did, it wasn't his fault, but he didn't know. He's trying to lock up with Brody, I said, just listen, just listen, Lex. You know he's a little nervous, fighting this big guy, working with this big guy. He's been, uh, uh, you know, a big star for all these years, all those times in Japan, and huge star. And Lex and Brody wouldn't work with him, and he would no sell Lex, and Lex didn't know what to do, and Lucas Brody started beating him up a little bit, not shoot beat but a kind of working beat and shit and Lex start freaking out Lex has got a little bit different finish I mean different uh this is how I remember it so fucking Lex started four or five minutes into the match Lex starts freaking out thinks he's gonna get stretched or whatever is going through his mind but it was no selling Lex's stuff and wouldn't talk to him in the ring or nothing I think Brody said, Who's this young kid trying to take over me in the ring? He said, Listen to what the fuck I say, you know? And that wasn't the case, but it wasn't Luger's fault. So, Fonzie, so Luger comes to me and says, Fonzie, what did I do? What are you really nervous, and scared, you know, uh, uh, frightened? And I says, Well, just grab the referee, which is me, and throw me against the cage and I'll decue kill you. And the world boom, boom, boom. And so that's what happened. He grabbed me and threw me. And Luger couldn't get out of that cage. Passer, so I think he couldn't wait for the door to get unlocked. And he crawls, climbs over the cage, and jumps down. Goes to the dress room. I remember this. Grabs his bag, jumps in his car, and leaves. Didn't there was no uh, in a dressing room? Hey, what happened or nothing? He just fucking left. Um, and I didn't put it over to Brody or nothing. You know, it's just one of those things. It was a bad booking should never happened. Did Brody say anything afterwards? Not really.
1: Well, okay, I mean, we, we watched the match. Jared and I have watched the match. We had Lex on talking about it. It Tells basically the same same story. You know, Brody, right, yeah. Brody never like he was going to beat him up. Brody just quit selling. He just stood in the corner
2: and correct didn't, even, didn't, didn't 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 do anything. Didn't register. Didn't do nothing. I don't even think he threw a punch at Luger. I think he might have no, hit him he a just couple times in the back. Just, yeah, yeah and, Luger, and Luger just freaked out you know
1: what did the, boys, uh, did the boys say anything about it, it was I mean that, that this was so strange
2: it was kind of strange and I'm sure there were all kind of remarks and stuff and maybe Luger was a little embarrassed because he didn't know what to do or you know and I told him I said hey just send him down just listen you know whatever Brody says do it you know and it was like talking to a deer in the headlights. Luger couldn't really hear me. You know, he's worried about what was going on. He's worried about his career. They had his opponents. He's the next big star. And he became a big star, The you know. Uh, but no, Brody never. Brody let us know about it in the ring. You know what I mean? Yeah. He Let us know what his intentions were in the ring. No sell of this kid. Who the fuck does this kid think he is? I'm Bruiser Brody. Don't know, you know. Wade fucking settle down. I'll walk you through this match, make you a little bit, but I'm Bruiser Brody, you know what I mean? One thing you can say for sure,
1: bad
3: booking. Bad booking, yeah. Absolutely, and
2: I was the only office personnel there.
1: That,
3: and that, that's another mistake to me, not having some office guy. And then you got you got a star that you're building to be the biggest star in your territory, and you're not there one of the biggest, most important advancement matches ever in the, in his career. You're not there, somebody from the office is not there to Give instructions out to Matt me it was, wasn't it, was there either. Matt it was a poor office decision Yeah, but right bill, bill bill i got something speaking to john you're speaking of the trip you know we go on these trips all over you know you 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 see all kinds of wildlife bill do you remember here i'm going to try to get him over there right in that corner up, up up in that corner there you see that bobcat you remember that bobcat didn't i give that to you you gave it to me yeah you stuffed to you and i think andre Coming yeah. back from Fort Myers, you guys, it ran out in front of you, you hit it and you're an old, you're old cracker, redneck like me, and you, I'm not going to let that thing on the side of the road. You took it and wanted it up, put it in plastic bag, put it in the ice chest, froze it for me. You couldn't find a guy. He was telling about this guy down there in Odessa that would stuff it for me. Well, I took it down and got it stuffed. but Bill Alfonso and Andre gave me that. that
1: <laughs> so, so Bill, you ran over the wildcat on the
2: road. And not a scratch on him. It was like a like a miracle. You know, he went 70 miles an hour. For somehow I hit the bobcat and he took a flip and bump and he was dead. But it his body wasn't. His body wasn't mangled. There wasn't
3: a cut. There was no juice. I don't know how that happened. That's what the guy said that, 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 that fixed him. But he said, I've never seen an animal that got hit by a car in this good a shape, but uh, <laughs> Roddy Popper, I let Roddy say here. we were working Carolinas Let Roddy say here at my house. One time and I used to have my Bobcat over on the fireplace there. So you walk in the door and you walk around the corner and if the moon's out just right, it hits that cat's eyes and the cat's in a, an aggressive position. Roddy walking in a dark house. He don't know where he's at. I live out in the country. And he he comes in. I told him nobody's lived there for a couple of months, as I know of. There might be somebody kept out in there. So, Piper mm-hmm. comes in. He got his gun. Him and his wife walk around the corner. He sees his cat, and his eyes glare at him, and the cat's in aggressive position. Roddy pulls his gun out, and, almost, and Kitty has to... Pulling back. No, that that stuffed cat. So he was going to shoot our cat. <laughs> Can I
2: tell you a cool story about Piper and an Alligator? Sure. So Piper comes down to work the territory. You know how we used to come in for the week and the uh, Moodle come in for the week, make right. the loop, the champion come in for the week, the midges to come in for a week. So Piper was a big TBS, or whatever the fuck he was, I guess Ted Turner. I mean not Turner, uh Jim Crockett guy. And so Dusty brought him in for the week and so he jumped in the car, we did TV on Wednesday and then drove down to Miami It was me, Kevin Sullivan, a guy named, you remember this name, and you might too, John. Uh, remember the Dusics? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there was a kid, one of their sons, Frank Wally, Wally Dusik, wasn't it? Or... Well, I think Wally Dusick was one of the fathers or okay, Frank Dusick right. was yeah, one of the I don't know who you're talking
3: about, it's Carolina. So, yeah, no. so
2: anyways, uh, 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 I'm driving a car, Frank's in the back, Kevin Sullivan's in the front, and, and Piper's behind me. And we're going down alligator alley, but we had to go through a mockley that wasn't 75 all the way down like it is now. And that canal would run parallel with us, and there'd be all kind of alligators. And now Piper's a Canadian and he's freaking out. He's seen these big alligators. He said, Mike, you can't believe it. the first time you've seen the live alligators laying on the bank and hundreds of them, you know, here and there. So uh, Piper's going nuts and he said, Man, I wish I had a gun. And Frank Dusik says, I got a gun. <laughs> Let's pull over. So we pull up, over, and Frank Dusik pulls out this old 38 stub nose pistol. And now, now the alligator's hanging on the bank across the canal. And there's no way Piper's going to shoot this alligator. No way. Or he's going to attempt to. He wants to, he said, Oh my God, give, give me the gun. And he, and while out there watching him, and he's so excited and he takes aim at the alligator. He pulls the trigger. Bam! He hits the alligator. <laughs> it hits him in the neck or something and the alligator starts selling and he crawls in the water and he flips upside, upside down. Now he's laying his, his, you know, he's laying upside down, floating in the water. He's dead, we think. And so Piper starts fucking taking his clothes off. He's down oh, to his God. underwear and Kevin Sullivan says... I'll go down about 30 or 40 feet and splash the water and attract the other alligators towards me. <laughs> Meanwhile, Piper, you swim across the canal, grab the dead alligator and bring him back. He wanted the alligator. So Kevin Sullivan goes down, and starts splashing here and the alligators kind of move over there and Piper's down to his white underwear and gets in the water, he's about halfway to the alligator, and the alligator was working. He flips back over, <laughs> yeah. and he starts chasing Piper, and Piper freaks out, it looked like a cartoon. You remember the road runner when he would <laughs> run in place like a cartoon? and He was swimming like that. So Piper comes back to the shore, and you can't believe it, and as soon as that happens, uh, highway patrol pulls up. and says, hey, what are you guys doing? And, we explained it. We didn't tell him we shot the alligator, of oh, course, but law, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he had his clothes back out. We said, oh, we're just showing the Canadian alligator and all that. And he, you know, he put us over because we told him the wrestling and all that so we were cool. Uh, but that's a pretty cool story. So when the cop pulled up, was Piper still in his underwear? No, no. He had got dressed. He got dressed. Uh, <laughs> so we would have had to explain the underwear. Why the fuck is in the underwear? He's soaking wet, but
3: Jerry, Jerry, why was Piper walking through your house with a gun? Well, he was staying He was staying in my house and I had, I, I, I was working in Carolina. My wife and I moved up there. Uh, she was having West at the time. So she wanted to, her parents are up there. So she wanted to be up there. So Piper was going to take a Florida vacation. He's going to rent a hotel and all this. Stuff. I said, right. My house is down there. Nobody's been at it for six months. Just go down there in three days and you can go get a hotel if you want to. But, you know, just check my house out here. Here's a key. So. I loaned him my house, you know, uh, for three days. And, and so he's afraid he's a Canadian. Like I said, uh, like Bill was saying. So he, him and his wife were walking in, it's a dark house. Now my power box, you got to go past that cat to get to my power box. And I, I forgot to tell him the cat was there, but I told him where the power box was. So he was coming around the corner, to go to the power box. And all of a sudden those eyes, his moonlight got them. And those eyes are glaring at him. He takes a carrying a gun. He takes the gun out and getting ready to shoot. And, Kitty's no, no, no. <laughs> it's not live. He <laughs> could have blown my whole damn house up, you know. He's <laughs> just been a nice guy and letting Hot Rod stay in my house for three days, you know. Yeah, he's, he's but like I gotta give him credit, man. He mowed my yard. He uh helmet kitty you know, all the dust from being sitting for six months, cleaned the yeah. house up for now. They 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 did awesome, man. Oh, it's awesome. And you know, know, we we really appreciate that, the, the time that you spent with us today, man. We lived, relived some old stories, some old road stories, a lot of ECW, a lot of Florida, and, you know, I talked about the giant Gonzalez a little bit. Man, it's been a great day here with you. We really appreciate your time. Thank you
2: so much, guys. Hey, remember I told you that I was want to read off my, uh, that I'm right, still relevant looking. to the business because I was a- uh, And by the yeah, way, where
3: uh, can we work in a book? You got an email or anything like that? Oh yeah, Bill Alfonso, um, dot real
2: at iCloud.com. You can I'm on all the social media, Instagram, Facebook, and all that. I get messages all the time and please call me if you're interested. But uh, so I just got back from I did a show in Cleveland for AIW, a nice little company up there. They had about 700 people in their audience. Um, this weekend I'm in Detroit hosting a Super Bowl party, getting paid really good for that, flying me up hotel.
3: Super Bowl party, Bill? Yeah, no, WrestleMania, I'm sorry. Okay. Same thing, yeah. Same thing Same right?
2: Thing, yeah, yeah we, we, can, we can give you a spoiler on the Super Bowl, who won?
0: <laughs>
2: I love this, man. Anyway, so um, I just got back from Cleveland uh, this weekend. Uh, I'm in Detroit on the 3rd. I'm in Miami on the 8th. I'm in somewhere in fucking Ohio, dude doing a big time convention for Dylan Himes, RBD, the Bobby Fulton convention, whatever. Um, I'm going to do something for, for Vice TV next, um, somewhere between the 11th and the 14th. They want to fly me to Atlanta they're doing something, not the dark side of the ring, but something the else. The territories, right? Correct. So they called me and I said, of course, I would love to be in. And, and I was telling stories they were asking. I was telling them the same thing. You and you know, I was-
3: might be on the same plane.
2: Okay, uh, so then uh, after that, I'm in uh, Port St. Lucie, and West Virginia, Daytona Beach, I'm like at eight bookings this month, and all, you know, they meet my talent fee, which is terrific, which is great, and, you know, they fly me up, so I'm still relevant, because I'm still doing things like this, and I'm personable and people can approach me I get Fonzie chants when I go to the ring sometimes and I'm really good with the fans at conventions I give away a lot of shit you know I blew a whistle in ECW that was my gimmick right uh so I had some of these made up and I ordered a thousand of them I sold 700 of them. I'm the only guy in the business with the whistle They cost me uh, small money to make, and I sell them for twenty bucks signed. I sold seven hundred, gave three hundred away. So I'm making a little something, and I'm having a good time. I'm still relevant. I'm not killing myself. Just working weekends, having a good time, doing podcasts. Usually I get a talent fee for podcasts, but there's no way I'm expecting anything. It would not even bring it up, but I get paid well, I'm, to do glad. Podcasts. I'm
3: glad because we don't have one. <laughs> uh,
0: okay. Nah,
3: I would never ask, but
2: no, I do a lot of podcasts and I get get a little talent fee. The boys are doing it during the virus, you know, uh, we weren't working. So I was doing podcasts with my niece the ad out say hey Fonzie's available for podcasts and people call i probably did 20 podcasts uh during the virus yeah. and got paid a small talent fee which is great and they loved it he paypal me instantly for me to tell them stories you know well, so Fonzie, i'm yeah. still creating a little revenue as what i'm saying i'm so happy to be on your show thank you so much guys jerry briscoe Daryl, you know how much i love you and care about you Uh, John, you're fantastic to uh, uh, be in the sports entertainment business with us. You're a big star, and congratulations on your career, and and God bless both of you guys, man.
1: Well, Fonzie, when Jerry told me you're going to be on, we've never had a chance to to visit, and and I was really looking forward to it. This has been an absolute pleasure. So you're an icon, and, and can't thank you enough for coming on our show.
2: Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you.